do this. Let's talk about talk. Hey there, I'm Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. You can call me Andrea. Thanks for listening to Talk About Talk. This is where we come to learn and talk about all things communication. Because when we communicate effectively, we can be a better manager, coworker, parent, partner, and friend. I want to welcome you to episode number 29. This episode is completely different from any of the previous episodes. As always, it's focused on communication. And as always, I promise you'll learn a lot from listening to this podcast. For this episode, I'm answering your questions. Over the past month, in response to my request, many, many of you have emailed or posted questions to me on social media. And I thank you so much. It is so gratifying to hear from you and to know that there's actually someone listening on the other end of this microphone. You have no idea. Okay, seriously, I took the many questions that I received and I categorized them. I received personal questions, general questions about podcasting, specific questions about this Talk About Talk podcast, and, of course, questions about interpersonal communication and communication skills. So, there's a lot to get through. Let's get going. I'm going to start with the personal. Someone on LinkedIn asked me, how did you get into marketing? Well, actually, there's a quick story here. When I went into undergrad, I really had no idea what I wanted to study or pursue. My best subjects in high school were math and art. So I thought, maybe architecture. But I decided to go into business, since you can do almost anything from business. There's finance, HR, accounting, marketing, strategy. It's flexible, right? Here's the interesting part. In third year, I declared finance, yes, finance, as my major, and I got what I thought was a pretty cool summer job in the finance department at an oil company headquartered in Calgary. In the first week, I asked the woman who was training me, couldn't you just hire a university student to write a program to replace this entire department? Gutsy, right? Okay, maybe even stupid? But it seemed like such an obvious question. Her answer to me, shh, don't suggest that, okay? Well, from that moment on, I was out. I went back to school in the fall and changed my major to marketing. Thank goodness. I had no idea how enamored I would become with consumer psychology. So no regrets there. The next question was emailed to me by someone named Sharon. Sharon asked me, what would you tell your 18-year-old self now knowing what you know? I love that question. It's not an easy one. I really don't have a lot of regrets. One thing that I learned slowly that I wish I'd realized sooner is that while we rarely regret the things we do, we might regret the things we don't do. In other words, just do it. I remember in my 20s when I was contemplating doing my MBA degree, my Aunt Joyce said, do it now. And thankfully, I took her advice. It wasn't really until I was in my 40s and I heard this saying about regretting what we don't do that it actually became a mantra for me. I remember over a year ago telling my friend Stephanie Rudnick, She's the founder of Elite Basketball Camps, who eventually became a guest expert here on Talk About Talk in the episode focused on coaching. Anyway, when I told Stephanie that I was thinking of doing this podcast thing, she brought me her microphone and she told me, just go and do it. And nowadays, if someone asks me my opinion about whether they should do something, I'll always say, more of our regrets are focused on what we don't do. We rarely regret what we do. So that is what I wish I knew a lot earlier. Okay, here's the last personal question. It's a tough one. What was your biggest success and what was your biggest failure and what did you learn from them? Let me start with failure. Yes, there have been many. 
but one always sticks out in my mind. Perhaps not coincidentally, this failure taught me very early on just how challenging and important marketing can be. In my fourth year of my Bachelor of Commerce degree, with my newly declared major in marketing, I was elected to be the president of a student group called the Business Day Group. Every year, we invited established business people to come in for a one-day conference for executives and students. Well, long story short, I tried to grow this into a massive event. We're talking fancy hotel, and we even secured past Prime Minister Joe Clark as a speaker. But our costs grew faster than our conference attendee list, and we ended up having to cancel the whole conference. I was so ashamed. But as they say, I learned some incredibly valuable lessons about marketing. My biggest success? On paper, it's probably my doctoral degree from Harvard Business School. But in my life in general, it's probably my kids. Parenting is way tougher than being a student, in my opinion, so I'm most proud of being a mom. I guess what I've learned from being a parent is that there really are many different kinds of intelligence, aren't there? There's school smarts, street smarts, parenting smarts, communication smarts. And I hope I've become more open-minded and less judgmental about other parents and kids from my experience as a mom. Okay, let's move on to the questions that you sent me about podcasting in general. One question that I've received many, many times is, how did you learn to podcast? It's not like podcasting is just common sense, right? Well, I attribute most of my learnings to three people. The first is Seth Godin. Just over a year ago, I was accepted into Seth's inaugural podcasting fellowship. It's an online course that taught us basically everything we need to know. I'm grateful to him and his partner in crime, Alex De Palma, for that. One of the best things about this podcasting fellowship experience is the amazing group of fellow podcasters that I met, including David, Morgan, Nadine, Maria, Gabrielle, Jay, and I could go on. The podcasting community is incredibly supportive. The second person I also learned a lot from is my little brother, Brian. Well, my big little brother. He, amongst other things, is a talented sound production engineer. He taught me all about the technical stuff, and especially about the importance of audio production quality standards. And he still provides me with a lot of valuable advice. The third person, more recently, that I've been learning from is Dave Jackson. He's a podcasting hall of famer, and he runs the School of Podcasting, which is a weekly podcast and online resource for podcasters. I always refer people who ask me for advice about how to podcast to Dave at the School of Podcasting. He's really the expert. A few weeks ago, I finally got the guts to connect with Dave Jackson at the podcasting school. And guess what? He immediately featured Talk About Talk on one of his episodes. Then he interviewed me as an expert for one of his episodes, which is very cool. I will definitely let you know when that episode is out. Next question. Why do you like to do podcasts? Well, I know that I like to podcast, but I actually had to think about this for a minute. What I really like to do is teach. Usually that's face-to-face, right? In front of a room. So why podcasts? I guess I personally started listening to some podcasts, and I've been listening to a few for some time, especially NPR podcasts like Hidden Brain and How I Built This. What I particularly love about podcasts is that you can multitask when you're listening. Personally, I listen to podcasts when I'm driving, when I'm getting ready in the morning, when I'm working out. So I guess I consider podcasts to be an efficient medium for both educational and entertainment purposes. And when I was thinking about starting Talk About Talk as an online resource focused on communication, I thought podcasting would be one effective way of getting the message out there. It's really as simple as that. Now, 
Let me start answering some questions specific to Talk About Talk. First, people ask me all the time, how is Talk About Talk doing? Well, I don't have subscriber numbers, but what I do have is downloads. I am thrilled and grateful to tell you that we have thousands and thousands of downloads. More importantly, the downloads are increasing at an increasing rate. In other words, more and more people are listening to Talk About Talk every month. And that is great news. Audience size is critical to the success of this business. Every time you tell someone about Talk About Talk or afford the blog to someone, you're helping Talk About Talk grow. And I am eternally grateful. Thank you. I took a look at some of the stats provided by my podcasting host. It's called Blueberry. And it shows that more and more of the downloads are coming from all around the world. It started mostly in Toronto, Calgary, Boston, and Chicago, cities where I've lived or where I know a lot of people. But the geographical concentration of listeners has expanded. Outside of North America, there are a significant number of listeners in Germany, the UK, Australia, Spain, and get this, Iran. I've included a map in the show notes that shows where Talk About Talk listeners are, if you want to take a look. I also track downloads by episode. Interestingly, most of the episodes have very similar number of downloads, so there's not a lot of variance between them. In other words, there are no duds. Typically, there's a spike of downloads when a new episode is released, then it slowly tapers. I guess that's not surprising. And the top five episodes, in case you're interested, are number five, Communicating with Color with Jen Perkis, Lori Ryerson, and Daryl Aiken. Number four, Artificial Intelligence or AI with professor and author Avi Goldfarb. Number three, Social Media with Volterra founder Andrew Jenkins. Number two, Your Personal Brand with Michael Boydell. And the top podcast to date is Storytelling with Harvard professor and author Jerry Zaltman. But again, the 6th and 7th and 8th ranked episodes really aren't that different in terms of the number of downloads. But anyway, I thought you might be interested to see how diverse this top 5 list is. In case you haven't heard all of these episodes yet, you can always find them on the Talk About Talk website. Okay, next question. My sister Allie asked me, after all the research you've done, what is the most surprising thing you've learned? I have to say, I am honestly stumped with this question. Not because I haven't learned anything, but rather I've learned so much. I'm learning every single week. I learn when I'm doing my own research. I also learn from the guest experts that I interview. These learnings are actually probably what keeps me going and makes me so enthusiastic about this venture. But I know my sister won't let me off the hook without an answer. So if I had to say what's the most surprising thing I learned, I would cheat and say there's more than one. One general and one specific. The general thing is how generous people are with their time and their expertise. I really had no idea. All of the guest experts provided their time and their expertise for nothing tangible in return. From Bradley Christensen, the opera singer who took time from his practice and performance schedule to teach us how to use our voices, to Carolyn Quinn, the executive director of Toronto Fashion Week, who shared her expertise on fashion, to North York General Hospital CEO, Dr. Joshua Tepper, who cleared his crazy schedule for an hour to help us all communicate more effectively with our own doctors. Wow. People often ask me whether the guest experts are my friends. Well, I have to tell you, many of them are. There were two past classmates of mine, including brand trust guru, 
Baron Manet from my old MBA days, and then there's stand-up comedian Hilary Anger Elfenbein from Harvard. Neither one of them hesitated for a second when I asked them to provide their expertise. Just like many of my past professors and academic colleagues, like Ellen Oster, who shared her expertise on change management, and Russell Belk, who shared his expertise on possessions. And let me tell you, these folks are world-class experts. We're so fortunate. I also called on some of my past work colleagues, like Cynthia Barlow, who taught us about body language. And then, from my days at Kraft Foods, Nancy Peterson, the founder of Homestars, shared her insights about ratings and reviews. But back to the question about the most surprising thing I learned. Again, generally, it's about people's generosity of their time and expertise. Specifically, there are two episodes where I have to say I learned the most. Like, my learning curve was vertical. My head was exploding, as I like to say. Interestingly, both of these episodes were focused on language, but they are very, very different from each other. First, there's the episode on language with TFS head of school and polyglot Giuseppe Gonzalez, who's fluent in many, many languages. He blew me away with his mastery of not only language, but also of history and philosophy. And I love his last line. He said that language is the vehicle for authentic democracy. Wow. Then the other episode where I think I learned the most was the profanity episode. I knew as much about profanity as the average person, I'd say, which, as we learned, is mostly wrong. There are a lot of myths about profanity. By the way, I have to tell you this. I cold-called Professor Darren Flynn, the linguistics professor who shared his expertise for this episode. I found his name online when I was doing some research for this episode, and he generously agreed to do it, no questions asked. He even said to me, I could tell by the focus area of your podcast and just by the fact that you're podcasting that this would be an interesting conversation. Wow, right? Well, I went from zero to 500 pretty fast with that interview. And in case you haven't listened to that one yet, there are two versions. One is clean and one is explicit. And aside, because we decided to have both clean and explicit versions available, I actually had to change the overall rating of the Talk About Talk podcast Previously, it was rated G, completely clean. Now it's rated explicit. But you've probably noticed that all of the subsequent episodes have no profanity in them. Or if they did, they were bleeped out. So don't worry, I won't be dropping any more F-bombs. Okay, next question. What is your biggest surprise from Talk About Talk? Well, my biggest surprise is actually a cliche, I have to say. It's simply that this venture is way more work and way more fun than I anticipated. Really, like way more hours and thankfully, way more satisfying. Many people also ask me, how do you come up with topics? And aren't you worried that you're going to run out of topics? Well, so far that has been one of the easy things. Thanks mostly to you. Of course, I do have a master list of future topics. Sometimes it's a topic and I look for someone to interview. Like I knew from the beginning that I wanted to do an episode on fonts and emojis. I did some research online and I found our guest expert, Patrick Griffin. Remember him? The font guy? Amazing. And sometimes it's the opposite. I know someone already who's an expert, like Graham Harris, the seasoned PR guru who taught us all about public relations. So then I just add the topic. Sometimes my friends and colleagues will recommend someone who's absolutely perfect as a Talk About Talk guest expert. Like when my friend Suzanne recommended Andrea Warnick, 
who shared with us her expert advice on how to support our grieving friends. And then my friend Renee, who introduced me to master wellness coach Tosca Reno, who taught us all about resilience and positive self-talk. Sometimes people email me or post on social media with ideas. One listener named Dan in Chicago sent me a fantastic list that I'm slowly making my way through. Thank you, Dan. And I also have a few friends in Toronto who are constantly giving me ideas and encouragement, sometimes when I need it most. Thank you in particular to Sue and Marvi and Renee. If you have ideas for future topics for guest experts, you can get them to me on social media or email me at andrea at talkabouttalk.com. Yes, I read absolutely everything you send me. Okay, next question. Another listener named Ryan asked me, why don't you start sharing the podcast on YouTube? He told me he listens to podcasts on YouTube all the time. I've actually heard this from a few people. Another listener named Cheryl suggested the podcasts should actually be videos. Well, Ryan and Cheryl, I agree with you. I need to get on this ASAP. Just so you know, I'm listening. I did create a YouTube channel and I posted one video, so I'm on it. And I thank you for the push. Now we're making great progress on this list of questions that you sent me. The last category of questions is those questions focused on interpersonal communication and communication skills. The first question is, what do you think is the number one most important communication skill? Great question. And no, I'm not just saying that to buy time. I really mean it. This is the perfect question, don't you think? In my opinion, the most critical communication skill is listening. If you're not listening, you're probably not being heard. And you're definitely not communicating. Communication is two-way, and too much of our focus goes into thinking about what we're saying next, not listening. I go into this a little bit in episode number 24, the ABCDEs of communication. The fifth step is E, ears. Use your ears. Listen. Okay, given my answer to this question, I'm thinking I should devote an entire episode to this topic of listening. Yes? I got a great question from my podcasting friend Morgan. She has a podcast called Kindsight 101, and she asked me, when it comes to developing rapport in the workplace, what are some of your top tips for us? Another great question. Thank you, Morgan. I have a short list of things to consider here. First, when you're developing rapport in the workplace, know that the effort required to build this rapport is absolutely worth it. Yes, it's way more fun to work in places with people whom we consider our friends, Research shows that we often stay in jobs longer when we work with friends. So don't be that guy who comes in, shuts the door, does his work, and goes home without any personal connection. Second, remember that this is your work and your career. In other words, these aren't your besties. So there is a balance. You might remember in a blog that I wrote about friendship that according to sociologist Jan Yeager, Work friends can be very different from our real friends, and studies have shown that many people would dump a friend for the sake of a job. Good to know. Last, in terms of developing rapport in the workplace, the law of reciprocity. You get what you give. I'm not talking about being opportunistic here. I'm talking about consciously doing some easy, almost effortless things to build rapport. Here are a few suggestions. First, don't hesitate to publicly compliment people about their hard work and their success. People who draw attention to others' successes are often seen as better team players and even as leaders. Two, offer to pitch in with colleagues' work when you know that you can truly add value. Perhaps when they have a time conflict and you can help alleviate that, or perhaps when you have a particular expertise. 
even if it's not conscious, people do track who is owed favors. And three, another suggestion is to check in with your colleagues about personal things that they've shared with you. This could be face-to-face or on the phone or in an email or whatever. If they told you they're going away for the weekend, maybe ask them on Monday, how did it go? Or if they told you they're going to their child's school concert, ask them the next day how it went. All right, next communication question. What are some twists on small talk that would make for more interesting conversations on both ends? So I'm guessing from the interesting for both ends part of this question that small talk can be boring. I guess that can be true, but I do have two suggestions here for small talk that can be really helpful. First, look for that thing that you have in common. It could be a person that you both know, a past employer, a hobby, your family status, where you live, anything. Talking about something that you have in common with someone has got to be more interesting than basic small talk. And the second piece of advice is storytelling. You could try saying something like, you've worked here since the beginning? Wow, I bet you have some great stories. Or maybe something like, there must be a story behind that gorgeous bag you're holding. Stories. Do what you can to get the person to tell you a story. I hope that helps you with your small talk. All right, next question. My friend Jay Klaus from the Podcasting Fellowship asked me a tough question on social media. He asked, what's the most effective way to communicate negative or constructive feedback? In my opinion, this topic is also worthy of an entire episode. But let me give you three suggestions. First, don't let yourself off the hook. Take it seriously. Don't joke around. People often resort to jokes and nervous laughter, but this isn't funny. And prepare yourself so you know what you want to say, but also be prepared to listen. Two, don't make it a surprise. Don't say, hey, can you come to my office? Uh, you're fired. No, be empathetic. Simply ask yourself, how would you like to receive this news? And last, avoid the poop sandwich. See, I told you no profanity. But you know what I mean by poop sandwich, right? Have you heard of a poop sandwich? It's like this, good, bad, good. Here's an example. Everyone around here likes you so much. You're a great team player. Unfortunately, we're going to have to let you go due to your lack of productivity. But don't forget, everyone loves you. Wait, what? That was a poop sandwich. So three ways to effectively communicate negative feedback. One, don't let yourself off the hook. Take it seriously. Two, don't make it a surprise. Be empathetic. And three, avoid the poop sandwich. I hope that helps. The next question came from a listener named Vanessa, who has her own nutrition business. She asked me, How do you market yourself to two distinct audiences who have two different problems or needs, but you offer them the same solution? Yes, I agree, Vanessa. This may be an offline conversation. The simple answer, though, is that ideally, all else equal, every customer should think that they are the most important customer and that your product or service was created just for them. But nowadays, with so much business happening online, you can probably talk to them both but with separate newsletters, and you can split up your website with tabs right on the landing page, like one for seniors, click here, and another for parents, click here. I'd love to get into the nitty-gritty with you on this, Vanessa. Let's do it. Okay, next question is, what is the most effective way to communicate with teens, especially when they're defiant? I have to be honest with you. The person who asked me this is herself an incredibly devoted and effective parent, in my opinion. So when I read this question, I actually laughed out loud. Again, parenting is the great equalizer. 
And I am certainly not a parenting expert. That would be another great topic for us to cover. I do have two tactical suggestions, though. First, take a deep breath and smile. Even if they aren't looking at you, the smile and the breath, it'll release your endorphins. And we always sound better when we take a breath. (sighs) The second is to use humor. Maybe try responding with something less defiant, but equally ridiculous. Got that? Less defiant, but equally ridiculous. It'll deflate the situation. Okay, here's the last question for this episode. I received this question from Mike on social media. He asked me, why do millennials think that texting is the only way to communicate? For those of you who listen to Talk About Talk regularly, you know that I always ask the same five rapid fire questions at the end. One of the questions is, what's your go-to medium for quick, casual conversations? The answer to this question certainly does correlate with age. Well, let me tell you, Mike, who asked this question, is a grandfather. He's also a senior level executive, and he manages staff and clients who are all different ages. He and I ended up having a conversation about this, and he said I could quote him. He said, quote, how about picking up the bleeping phone and discussing the issue? After the second or third text, you're wasting my time. I know I'm old, but this drives me crazy. It is one of my pet peeves. I'm dealing with a young architect on a project right now. I sent him a text, I sent him an email, I sent him a voicemail, and all three of them started with, call me. He just doesn't get it. So, he's gone. Now, I'm dealing with an older, retired architect. He gets it. As in, he gets Mike. And he also gets the job. Well, Mike, I have to tell you, I know from listening to our guest experts that many younger people prefer texts, and they defend texts as the default communication medium because people can respond to them when it's convenient for them, for both sides. So I guess that's my answer. The millennials Mike is describing are actually trying to optimize for convenience and possibly for productivity. But we all need to recognize that this does come at a cost. And we need to consider our audience. We should not just think about our words and the message, but what communication medium we should use. Wow, that's it. We made it through all of the questions you sent me. The personal questions, the podcasting questions, the talk about talk questions, and the communication questions. Thank you so much to everyone who sent me these questions. Please, please, please keep them coming. I take questions 24-7. I love hearing from you. I want to thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And I'd really love it if you'd subscribe to the weekly email blog. Just go to talkabouttalk.com and sign up for the blog and to access all of the past blogs and podcasts. All right, that's it. Thanks again for listening and talk soon. Talk soon.